Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this Monday night recording of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I am your host, Nipun Chopra. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. In a memorable day, Leicester City were officially declared champions of the Premier League after a feisty draw between Chelsea and Spurs. We'll talk about the Premier League title race, which is now, I guess, over uh, in Section 1, relegation battle in Section 2, and the rest of the Premier League, as well as preview the Champions League games in Section 3. In order to help me do that, I'm joined by Kratik Krishnayar and making his reappearance on World Soccer Talk, Chris Hennage. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me tonight. Good to be with you. Uh, I have to say at this point that we actually had another recording with Chris. Uh, it was lost to the world of software mismanagement. Uh, this was about a month ago before I left for India. So I'm glad Chris is back officially on World Soccer Talk. And uh, along with Kartik, this will be a partnership that will continue uh, for a while now. So, guys, let's get into block one, where we'll talk about the title challengers and the top four. The title challenge is now over after the first game, which we'll discuss today, which was Chelsea and Spurs, the Monday night game. Uh, Lots of vitriol and comments made in the media before this game, and that kind of translated into the game itself. And Karthik, I'll start with you. A very open game and lots of flying tackles. Kladenberg probably should have shown a yellow uh, and might have settled the game. So uh, your thoughts on this game? Well, we've had so much controversy about officiating uh, between uh, uh, some of the uh, some of the John Moss and some of the incidents in England and then here in the States, uh, constant controversy in MLS and in NASL. But I have to say, honestly, I think Kladenberg did about the best job he could in this in this chippy affair. Maybe he could have shown a yellow earlier, but he mm-hmm. did finally try and take control of the match. Uh, and Couldn't really gain control of it, but it was just that kind of affair. Let's just lay it out there. Spurs and Chelsea, bitter rivals. Uh, the supporters, bitter rivals. Uh, this is an opportunity for Spurs to win for the first time at Stamford Bridge in 26 years and win a title, an English title, for the first time in over 50. And you've got a situation where Chelsea, the defending champions, they've had a terrible season. They've sacked their manager. Uh, they've had all kinds of trouble. But one thing that would satisfy them is to, is to see Spurs not win the title, defeat their hated rivals, uh, and uh, hand the title to someone else who happens to be coached by uh, a former Chelsea manager. <laughs> so, so much on the line. You could just feel the tension from from the get-go. And... It was uh, it, it was something you couldn't take your eyes off of. I, I, I mean, I guess you could take your eyes off the match, but it was also so tense mm-hmm. that um, it, it didn't have the quality. And I know we're going to get to this in a 
minute Nipun of, of uh, the uh, the match between Manchester United and Leicester, which I really felt was a quality match between two teams trying to win. This seems a chippy affair between two teams that were desperate for the result, uh, given the circumstances I laid out, but uh, just something more, and maybe because it's the, the rivalry between the two clubs, something else boiled over and it became, uh, at, at one end, uh, something you couldn't miss, you couldn't take your eyes off, but so, uh, at the other end, something you didn't really want to watch. While while the, uh, the vitriol and the tackles existed throughout the game, I thought the level of play was from each team was different in each half, Chris. I thought it was a game of two halves in that sense. Spurs were much the better team in the first half. Chelsea started kind of strong. They had that chance uh, from Fabregas in the first five minutes. Uh, but beyond that, didn't create much of note uh, in the first half. And Spurs via some brilliance from Lamella, Harry Kane, uh, and of course Ericsson uh, went in with a two-goal two lead. In the second half, however, totally different game. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think you touched on Lamella there again. That was another impressive first half showing from him. Nice to see his kind of improvement continue. What concerns me from a Chelsea perspective is that it took this game for them to show some real passion and fight this season. I haven't mm-hmm. seen that kind of commitment to the cause from that group at all this season prior to this evening. And certainly it boiled over in some nasty ways and it wasn't the prettiest game in the world. And I'm sure there were a lot of instances that reaffirmed the negative stereotype of of professional football at the top level. What I would say, though, is they were able to rally, they were able to show something in a match that, that relative to them outside of the rivalry that you can define in your own ways means very little. They've now lost the Premier League title and handed it to Leicester by stopping Spurs. And and the whole sort of vibe around the thing was very weird. It felt, didn't feel like a club that were losing the, the Premier League title in that regard. It's almost like they've accepted that fate and, and almost reveled in the gallows humour of, of giving it to Leicester. So it was a very bizarre one in that sense. And I think what I would say is I would echo the sentiments of, of James Honcastle, who kind of joked that Antonio Conte could still turn the job down if he wanted. I think he's got a huge amount of work to undertake next season. Um, not just in terms of reshaping the squad, working out which youngsters to bring in, because I think he will have to bring some in, but also just in terms of giving them an identity and a bit of spirit back, because it seems as if there's a good number of the bigger players there who I would argue are quite willing to, to walk at this point and look like they're already set on doing so in the summer. Karthik, uh, Chris makes some great points there regarding the job that Conte has in the, uh, in the summer and going beyond. But let's talk about Pochettino. First of all, it's not really... Uh, at this point, we know that he is staying at Spurs. Uh, but have Spurs missed what might be their best chance ever to win the Premier League? Or are they title favorites, as you predicted early on, for next season? I think they're title favorites for early on for next season. And I keep hearing this speculation about Pochettino, Real Madrid, Manchester United... Uh, you know, there there's an inherent curse in managing a big club. Rafa Benitez right. has learned it again now. Uh, six months at Real Madrid, and uh, luckily for him, the Newcastle job was open. But uh, you, you sometimes uh, don't want that. And I think Pochettino is in a situation where he has already accomplished more than any Spurs manager since Terry Venables, maybe since before that. So um, maybe since Nicholson, I mean, since a legend. So you're looking at uh, a guy that I think is very comfortable. He's got a young team. They have probably the, the most competitive young core of any club in Europe right now, uh, which is why if you go to Manchester United, you've got rebuilding to do. You've got right. uh, rebuilding to do in uh, at Real Madrid. The Spurs youth teams, very importantly, are beginning to, uh, to, to, to play 
the, the Pochettino way. So I don't think he's going anywhere, and I don't think uh, uh, this is something that Spurs need to be let down about. Now, I have to say one thing, though, about this. They didn't win the title, but now they need to finish ahead of Arsenal. That's uh, very right. important psychologically for them when they look back on the season. The, the gap is now only three points. So Spurs, uh, uh, they have a, 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 I forget who they face this week, but they, they go to uh, Newcastle in the final match where Rafa Benitez decides is going to be fighting for survival. Uh, I think they better hope Arsenal drop points to Manchester City. Otherwise, uh, it could be another uh, uh, night like the food poisoning night in 2006 or, uh, or uh, 2013 when uh, uh, Arsenal uh, beat Newcastle on the last day and, and uh, uh, celebrated as uh, Arsenal as uh, they finished the point ahead of Spurs. They don't want to finish behind Arsenal now. I think that's the key. The fire that we saw from Chelsea was, as Chris mentioned, was was something that we haven't seen all season. And it was impressive. And it also coincided with some very good performances. Uh, Eden Hazard coming on for the second half was excellent, not not only for what is probably the goal of, this, uh, of the weekend, uh, but also his overall play, his movement, uh, his ability to get into get inside and outside uh, of uh, the right-back walker. Um, so I guess the question with Eden Hazard is, do you guys see him staying at Chelsea beyond the summer, or is he playing for a move to PSG at this point, uh, Chris? I, I don't see him staying personally. I, I think enough of his body language, his season, all all of that kind of melded into one situation suggests that, that it's time for him to go as much as anything. And that's mm-hmm. that can often be the most difficult thing when you invested £32 million in a player and, and you have someone that you know is worth a lot more than that now is, is knowing when to let go of that. And I think equally, <clears throat> I'm not sure where he fits into a Conte side personally. I think if you're putting him out wide, and it's just my opinion that Conte's always preferred someone that has a little bit more industry to them, maybe in, in wide positions. I don't know if Hazard has that. Whereas if he goes back to France, which for me personally seems a bizarre move anyway, because he's already won the French title with, with Lille, mm-hmm. then at least he can have, again, a little bit more of that freedom and that cavalier approach with PSG because of the way they're set up. And equally, you look at PSG and say, well, they're phasing out Zlatan, or while well, he's leaving rather than being phased out, I should say. So they're looking for that next superstar themselves. And who better than someone like Eden Hazard, who already has that reputation in France, is very highly thought of, and has a few years to, to run on him. So in theory, could be there for the long term. Whether he's the person to elevate him in the Champions League, I'm not entirely sold on that one, to be, to be honest, because I think he was sort of seen as someone that could do that for Chelsea and didn't. So putting him in a arguably a more intense situation where there's even more expectation on him doesn't seem like the best way to handle things. But in terms of his future at Chelsea, I just struggle to see one there for him. I think there's been too many bridges burned with this season. Well, I, I think this is important for Belgium this summer. I know we're uh, winding down the Premier League season, running down the European season. We only have one active time title race, which is Dortmund and Bayern. That'll probably be over this weekend. One active. T- oh, well, sorry, Spain. We have a very active title race. That's yes. my, 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 my fault. But... Um, the um, I, I think looking at the Euros, this is important for Hazard because Belgium comes in as the great curiosity for so many of us. Historically, they've never won anything. Uh, they But they've got this mishmash of players, all of which are very, very talented. Uh, we've even seen guys that we didn't fancy, like uh, Origi, the last few weeks really come good for, for uh, Liverpool before he got injured, the impact of Jurgen Klopp's management. And uh, to me, the missing piece for Belgium is Hazard. If you have uh, a Hazard who's feeling in the mood along with, whether it's Origi or or, uh, 
Lukaku, one of those two guys up top, uh, De Bruyne, and then uh, Aldo Roald, who for me has been the best defender in the Premier League this season, uh, him anchoring that back line uh, from Spurs, speaking of this match. Yeah. Uh, and along with Vertonghen, yeah. right, uh, and, and company if he's fit. Uh, you just have and Dembele, who's had his best season uh, in the Premier League this season with Spurs. You just have the makings of a team, irrespective of the lack of history and the lack of pedigree, that should that could win the Euros, and maybe should win the Euros. So um, I, I am curious to see see how Hazard finishes out the season, these last two games with Chelsea, and we'll worry about the transfers uh, till after the Euros. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how he plays into the Euros. So let's transition from here into the United versus Le- uh, Leicester game from yesterday. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, Karthik, I'll come to you. I was... Uh, so, so midweek, uh, after a good showing in the FA Cup, Van Hal continued with his uh, experiment with the Rooney in midfield, switching to a 4-3-3, making it the 748th uh, formation he's played this season uh, and it was interesting to see why he did that in the first half I thought it kind of worked I thought uh, having three in midfield counterbalanced uh, Conte and Drinkwater who have been the standout has been the standout midfield in the Premier League really at Leicester um, the two goals Martial's goal was equalized by Wes Morgan and I thought in general United were the better team but but Leicester uh, were, threatened a bunch from set pieces yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, Leicester were, were relying on set pieces, and we've seen them do this at times this season. In fact, I, I guess you could look at the uh, the um, game that ultimately probably decided the title was uh, Robert Hoot's goal on a late set piece at White Hart Lane. And just right. at a time, the, that, that was really the one definitive wobble we saw from Leicester this season. And they had drawn with Bournemouth, they had drawn with Aston Villa, remember, mm-hmm. and they went to White Hart Lane, and we were thinking they were falling out of the top four. Lo and behold, they come away with that goal, and, and they end up uh, you know, uh, winning the title. They, they, get, they go back on a run, they, they climb from third to first, and, and they've seen it out. Set pieces have been important for them all season long. And um, the, the thing I, I really liked about this match, the thing I enjoyed was I, I thought the tactical wrinkle was good for uh, Manchester United. It, it was you were able to get Martial into a in the kind of one-on-one matchups that you don't see um, Leicester lose very often. But Danny mm-hmm. Simpson had a hard time uh, with him in, in this match. And Richard and I, Richard Farley and I, our colleague, and I have talked all season long about these one-on-one matchups and how generally tactically Rainieri is the guy uh, who, who who finds a way to isolate his players in advantageous one-on-one matchups. And that didn't happen in this game uh, there. And then I felt like in the first half, Michael Carrick was pretty effective in negating right. uh, uh, the effective midfield play of, of Drinkwater and Conte, who I, I agree with you have been the best combo in, in the league this season. Though I must say, as the game wore on, I felt like Conte's influence really grew. Mm-hmm. And um, again, you know, uh, for me, he's the player of the year. I know Maras and Vardy have split the two awards, but uh, yeah, you could give it to any number of lesser players. Right. For me, Conte is the uh, best player in this league. I mean, I, to me, he's one of the best players in the world right now. Chris, talk to me about Leicester City. This is a game that uh, wasn't United needed the points more than Leicester City did. Uh, Leicester were without uh, Jamie Vardy, um, their record, I guess, goal scorer at this point now. Um, I thought in general Leicester City did just enough, but were you a little underwhelmed at what might have been uh, what could have been a convincing win for Leicester? I know, I know, in retrospect, now that they've won the league, it doesn't mean much. uh, But your, your thoughts on Leicester's performance? I thought they were 
<clears throat> solid for, for large periods. Again, they were tested more than I think they have been for most of the season. I think in some ways that, that's that's really benefited them is that a lot of people haven't expected a great deal. And I think there's been a consistent level of arrogance in their opponents in the sense that they thought they wouldn't fall into the same traps that those before them had and thought that they could outplay them in, in ways that just aren't really doable given Leicester's style of play. I think they did get a little bit fortunate with the, the penalty or free kick decision that, right. that wasn't given towards the end when which Drinkwater was sent off. And I think if you're looking through the season and you talk about league title wins and, and those kind of situations, it is one of those intangibles that's always stacked up alongside that actually the team in question had the decisions when they needed to have the decisions. It's mm-hmm. things like the Okazaki goal being given onside when Jamie Vardy's offside. It's things like the Drenny Drinkwater second yellow card. These things that that rack up and just help you continue that momentum. It's funny, I know Alan Pardew got a lot of pelters for saying that Palace could have been in an identical situation had they had more decisions. I think his point is a slightly laboured and, and a bit obtuse, but I see the argument he's forging that actually there is just that slither of, of fortune that's helped Leicester towards this as well. But it is founded on a bedrock of, of stability and uh, a really compact defensive play, which is is a real joy to watch given how unstructured the Premier League's become in the last few years. Yeah, I think that penalty decision kind of counterbalanced uh, the penalty earlier, which Rojo should have conceded on Mares, uh, which when you saw the replay, he really did uh, foul Mares. I think it was difficult to see in real time, however. Um, the, go ahead. The, the thing, I'm, the thing I've, I, I want to point out about that is that I think uh, Mares and Vardy, and they've split the player of the year uh, honors, the two major awards, and they're uh, two of the, the best players in this league. But I think they both earned a reputation for diving mm-hmm. from referees this season to where they're not getting those calls. Uh, to me, that was a clear penalty. But if it had been, uh, let's say, uh, Conte or, or Albrighton or, or, or Drinkwater, maybe it would have been called. I think Morris has earned has, has gained a reputation for diving. And Vardy has gotten a well-deserved reputation for embellishment and diving. Yeah. And that's why he's not playing, of course. Didn't play in these last two games. Yeah, I think had United had the same fire that Chelsea did in what was in what was a must-win game for United, uh, they might have actually been able to win this game. But uh, disappointingly, they end with a draw. Uh, they are now four points behind Man City uh, with the game in hand, um, and you know it, it doesn't seem likely that they will make it to the top four. Uh, West Ham is just a point behind them and will actually transition to the West Ham 3 nothing win over West Brom in this game. Uh, West Brom, first of all, Chris, uh, very unimpressive except for maybe Jonathan Lico. Uh, pretty typical West Ham performance. Had the uh, four central defenders in uh, all the four positions as fullbacks also, in, including Jonathan, uh, Johnny Evans at left back. Um, those The banks of three in the midfield, the same thing we've seen. Uh, it took the inclusion of, or sorry, the substitution of Berhino on into the second half that actually led to some chances for West Brom, but in general, very unimpressive. Uh, West Ham, on the other hand, some brilliant play by Payet yet again. Yeah, I think Leco was the, the silver lining of West Brom's cloud and again I think this is why Tony Pulis and West Brom fans have that little bit of friction between them is that he's a very mm-hmm. dour manager and, and we can talk about him wanting to sign attacking players in, in inverted commas and, and add something to the team I don't think it would change them dramatically because I, I don't think naturally he is an expansive manager I think you can be defensively 
rigid, but also still play beautiful football. Look at what Claudio Ranieri's done, the, the man that we started the show with. He's done that. I don't think the two have to be separate in that sense. And again, the the way that they finish the season, there is this weird habit I'm noticing with, with Tony Pulis that once his team's hit 40 points, it's very much turn the engine off and cruise to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point where, where fans won't take that, where they will look at the investment of tickets and all of those other things as, as wasted money and, and why should we bother? And I think this is why it so often does fall sour for him, whether it be at Stoke or whether it be at Palace's, that he's given money to spend and he doesn't spend it well and then asks for more money and says that he can fix things. But like anyone who gets into that vicious cycle, they always think they can fix it with just a little bit more money. I I think you contrast that with West Ham again, who've gone out and they have wasted money on the likes of Matt Jarvis, but I would sort of counter that with the fact that they went out and bought someone like Anna Valencia and someone like Dimitri Pai, who have actually elevated them to the next level. And I think they deserve immense credit for not just finding those players, but actually investing large sums of money in them because it's easier said than done. And I think, again, if if everyone had, had gone after Pai with the same ferocity that West Ham had, maybe he'd be somewhere else. Maybe he'd be doing something else. And that in itself, I think, deserves credit. It's just very contrasting in that sense. You've got one team that is playing very attacking football and playing a very exciting style alongside this West from side who again are just coasting and I think if I was having to buy a season ticket at one club next season I, I wouldn't be booking many train tickets to the Midlands Karthik you were talking about the Euros talk to me about how Mark Noble should be starting for England oh absolutely I don't know if he should be starting but he should be in the team I, 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 Cresswell's another guy I like on West Ham a lot that isn't getting a a look from England uh, which is odd because West Ham used to be the great English club they used to be the club mm-hmm. that could automatically put people into the England conversation. Uh, this this team, Noble has really improved this season under um, under Slavin Bilic as a two-way player. Uh, I think Kevin Nolan not being there has helped him, has given him a little more range, uh, a little more mobility in, in, in how he plays. And uh, To me, West Ham, I, again, the table, we say the table doesn't lie at the end of the season. To me, it, it might uh, somewhat in, in this specific case where I think uh, clearly, Leicester and, and Spurs are the top two teams in the league. To me, West Ham has been the third best team consistently through, yeah. through the season. They've just had a couple of these late draws. Uh, the uh, Chelsea game where, where there was that penalty, that unfortunate penalty that was called. The uh, Crystal Palace game where uh, Coyote was wrongly sent off. A couple of, uh, of, of strange decisions that have gone against them that have stopped them from being in the top four. But uh, they continue to, to really impress me. And Noble has just become such a good... good uh, two-way player and, and a, a guy that um again uh, Roy Hodgson has been willing to take chances on some of the young players from Spurs and rightly so uh, the Eric Dyers and, and the Dele Ali's Harry Kane's and others but uh, he hasn't given uh, uh the likes of Cresswell and uh Mark Noble a look and and that that really surprises me the win for West Ham leaves them five points behind Manchester City and a point behind Man United. Both United and West Ham have a game in hand. Let's move ahead to the Arsenal one nothing win over Norwich. Uh, Chris, I thought Arsenal were entirely dominant for most of this game. Uh, there was the usual intricate passing that we've come to associate with Arsenal. Uh, there was some background to this game with, with some uh, supporters who wanted to show their dissent towards uh towards Wenger in his 750th game as Arsenal manager. Um, it took the substitution of Welbeck to produce the game-winning goal. Uh, but in general, this game, again, 
which actually had uh, repercussions at both the top as well as the bottom, uh, went down to nothing of there was nothing of note in this game. Your your thoughts on uh, this game? I thought Norwich let themselves down with poor finishing, which yeah. having watched uh, talk Norwich City sporadically this season, that seems to have been an issue for them most of the campaign. And again, I, they they remind me a little bit of, of Burnley in that regard. I, I feel like. They're a team that is a very good championship team, but maybe doesn't have the quality enough to keep its, itself safe in the Premier League or keep itself away from that danger, at least. And and that's the concern, is that, again, you think, could you spend the money differently had you got Mbakani at the start of the season? Does that change things? Because right. he is a forward with a lot of pedigree and has played in the Champions League. The the curious contrast with, with Arsenal is that, again, they seem to have the quality... My issue with them, and I was talking to my old man about this, is that when you look at the Invincibles and the teams that really did succeed, yes, they passed the ball beautifully, but they weren't as ponderous as the current Arsenal team are. They were actually quite direct with it, and the beauty was not necessarily in how many passes it took, but how seamlessly they were stitched together to cut through a team. So you look at kind of the, the Vieira goal at, at Anfield is a, a really good example, I think, of that in the, the blue away kit. That, to me, typifies that generation of Arsenal. This one, it feels a little bit like a bad basketball game where it's just getting passed around the perimeter. It's turn, go wide. If there's not an angle, come back, go down the other side. That is is very rarely going to break a team down because you can just sit behind the ball and be organised and spring on it. And In many regards, I see why the Arsenal fans want change because not only have they seen their North London rivals surpass them, at this point in the Premier League. They've also seen Leicester mount a title challenge and successfully mount a title challenge, I should add. And that's going to concern you when, for so long, your argument has been, oh, we don't spend enough money. We haven't spent enough money. We need to spend more money. Leicester have really shattered that theory, if you think about it. And that's the concern, is that I think when they say time for change, I don't even think they're necessarily just talking about Arsene Wenger. I think they're talking about Olivier Giroud. I think they're talking about Walcott, Chamberlain, maybe to a lesser degree Ramsey. The players that have been trusted to carry the club forward that haven't delivered. So the change is not solely rooted in the dugout. It's rooted almost in what the club's sort of ethos has become, which is fourth place is acceptable. Karthik, I think Arsenal, as Chris is hinting here, Arsenal did just enough to do what was necessary. They got the three points. They're uh, three points ahead of City and a win away from Spurs, uh, who are three points ahead of them. Um, So they did what they had to. But from a North City perspective, interesting that they didn't play Mobikani or Naismith, uh, a player who has had some success against Arsenal before while he was at Everton. Uh, Did they miss a chance here with Arsenal being out of form? Yeah, they they certainly did. Although, I mean, I think uh, Alex Neal's thought was to keep it tight, and we've seen Arsenal have plenty of nil-nil draws in these sorts of circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through through uh, through the years and even in recent weeks. So, uh, I think his his thinking was keep it tight and then bring those guys on if we need to late on. Ultimately, that was the wrong thinking. Arsenal far superior, as Chris mentioned. Uh, it, they were. It seemed like they were always going to get a goal in this game, and uh, it took well by coming on to deliver that but uh yes a missed opportunity and, and uh looking at Nor- norwich's fix- fixture list coming in and the fixture list of S- something like newcastle i know we'll get to them in the next segment yeah. uh you can you can't you can't uh, uh you've just got to go for it at this point 
Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about the final game in this section, which was Southampton uh, 4-2 win against City. Karthik, a very heavily rotated City side, uh, was taken to the sword by particularly Sadio Mane. And and for me, Dusan Tadic was incredible in this game, uh, a throwback to his performances last season. Um, And talk to me about Sterling. His finishing let him down again. Uh, Iheanacho probably has to start midweek, right, alongside Aguero. He's probably your uh, most informed player right now. Yeah, or, or you start Iheanacho in, in the silver role uh, in in the hole behind where I think what you probably do in a four-two-three-one and play De Bruyne on uh, on the left, cutting inside, and then uh, Navas on the right. Yeah, Manchester City have been very, very poor throughout much of this uh, this Premier League season. This this seemed like a very unfortunately a very predictable uh, outcome, a predictable scoreline. Uh, guys that are just not at the races. Uh, it's uh, it's becoming a recurring theme that uh, if if City are not up for the occasion, they can't grind out results. They uh, they get opened up early, they give up goals early, lose their composure, and um, just seem on the whole disinterested. And that was this game. Uh, I, uh, yet another sad indictment of, uh, of of what's happened at the club. And there's this general sense among supporters that Pep Guardiola is going to come in wave a magic wand, and, and they're going to be, you're going to be very good next season. Well, I'm not sure about that. Chelsea should improve. Uh, Liverpool will improve for certain. I don't, I don't think top Spurs are going to get any worse. Uh, Arsenal, probably be around the same. Manchester United, probably be around the same or better. So uh, it, there's. I think this was a lens into what a tough rebuild Pep Guardiola has for outsiders mm-hmm. because even though Manchester City has spent a ton of money We've said it all season long on this show. They're, they don't have very much depth, considering right. the amount of money that's been spent. And when you begin to rotate players, you, you get performances like this. And uh, that should not happen to any top club. Chris, uh, let me ask you this question. I think every season from now until the end of time, we will be asking, who is the next Leicester City? And let me pose this to you. It's possible that Southampton is the next season is next season's Leicester City. They have a very, very good manager uh, they have some excellent players uh, in the likes of Mane, Wanyama, even Shane Long, who who is very underrated. Uh, they have a good goalkeeper in Forster, Tadic, who's been excellent again, Ward Prowse. The list goes on and on. Um, and of course, uh, some good, some decent defensive effort also towards the second half of the season. Is it possible Southampton is next season's Leicester City, or are they going to hemorrhage players like they did a summer and a half ago? I don't. I don't know if they'll hemorrhage players. What I would say is I'm not convinced of, of the credentials of them being the next Leicester City. Um, and I say that because I, I don't know if they have enough goals in them in the sense that hmm. you've got Pele, Sadio Mane, Shane Long all on sort of 10 there at, the, at this precise moment and Tadic on 7. It's the consistency is the issue. That's my concern. You really need someone to be pushing closer to to 20 as uh, Jamie Vardy is doing and then you need someone like Mara's in behind it mm-hmm. it's also the defence that, that slightly unsettles me with with Southampton in fact to be truthful it unsettles me more than, than their ability to score goals one of the reasons I think they've got those three forwards on ten goals is because they hemorrhage a lot so against City they conceded two against Villa it was two Everton won Newcastle won Liverpool two you know they, they couldn't find the net against uh, Leicester at all so it's those fine margins that I think really define it. If you look at Leicester, a lot of their performances, it was 1-0s. In fact, I think they had a string of them around the time that they beat Southampton to really 
just cement themselves at the top. I don't know if I can see Southampton performing in that same way and essentially producing enough of the, the really tight, clean sheets that are needed for this to happen. Karthik, Karthik your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think Southampton, uh, they, they, they had some shocking performances this season. They were very tight at the back last year but some shocking performances uh, defensively this this season and there seems to be just a lack of consistency in the side we've seen uh this season at times them dip into what what appear to be relegation for for uh for a month a month and a half i, I think in two, in two different two different occasions so i'm not sure they have the consistency yet to do this I um the side I'm intrigued by is West Ham, and we can talk about this on another show. But they are moving into the Olympic Stadium next season. If they can keep this court together, maybe they're the team that pushes. They're a London club, also, so you see that advantage in attracting guys like Payet to the club. Uh, maybe they're the team that that's the outsider that makes the run next season. Okay. Well, when we come back in section two, uh, we'll talk about the relegation battle, the games, that, uh, teams at the bottom of the league, and then we'll come back to uh, talk about the other games of the Premier League this weekend and preview the Champions League in Section 3. We'll be right back. This is World Soccer Talk Podcast. While Aston Villa has been relegated, uh, the, the battle between Newcastle, Sunderland, uh, and uh, North City still remains, uh, still continues. And as we mentioned, Arsenal beating North City one nothing. The other, uh, so let's really quickly talk about the Watford Villa game. Get that out of the way. Uh, a win for Watford, three-two against Villa. It was a game of little consequence. Uh, Karthik, uh, Watford with the come from behind win. I actually felt a little bad for Villa. I thought Sissoko was sent off a bit unfairly, and that changed the game. It went from two-one in the 89th minute uh, to three-two with a couple of goals from Troy Deeney. Um Maybe the only thing worth mentioning, I guess, Chris, is uh, Jordan Ayew will be is the standout star for Villa right now. Uh, probably a t- player that will be highly contested for in the summer. Yeah, shades of, of Andros Townsend at QPR and, and Scott Cast at Charlton many years ago in, in terms of a player that is shining in the midst of relegation. You could equally forge an argument, though, to say that he was one of the many players that let them down this season. Um I was watching a sort of season review um, on Ball Street with with one of their fans. uh, And he essentially said that actually the foreign players hadn't let Villa down at all. It was the crooks of of English and local players like Jolene Lescott who'd who'd really let the club down. And I think, you know, the the problem I think Villa have at the minute is they keep finding new ways to embarrass themselves. And I say that in the sense that first off, Lescott comes out and says that it's a relief to be relegated. This gives them a freedom potential. It means the pressure's off. They then go and take a 2-1 lead at Watford and then still manage to, to mess things up. So you could argue that this club is, is really quite rotten at the core at the minute and will require significant changes in the summer in terms of player personnel. On top of the fact they're going to have to now bring in a new manager as well to oversee everything. And that will require deep pockets, which <clears throat> excuse me, is not without a reminder of the fact that the start of this slide for Villa comes after Martin O'Neill leaves and Randy Lerner decides to really kind of bring back the budgets for the sole reason that he felt they were overspending, they couldn't keep up with it, £10 million on Curtis Davis, this kind of acquisitions just weren't sustainable for them. So in, in reducing those budgets, he's actually potentially cost the club a lot more in 
the future because now they're going to miss out on a, a significant payment next season. And then, you know, predicting the future is, is akin to throwing a coin at this precise moment. You've got no idea until until it lands. Karthik, from a Watford perspective, there was a, a moment early in the season where we were talking about Watford and West Ham with the same sort of analysis. Uh, after that came a bit of a slide for Watford. Uh, this result keeps them in 12th. Um, and let's be honest, at, at the end of the day, the the goal was to stay in the Premier League. Sanchez, uh, Kiki Sanchez-Flores has done a good job. Uh, good result for Watford. Yeah, I suppose so. He's under a lot of pressure now, Kiki Sanchez-Flores. We know the Pozo family is not shy about uh, about uh, sacking managers, changing managers, uh, changing philosophies. So uh, this is uh, this is an important win for him. I, I I don't know if it's if it's too little, too late. Uh, on the surface, based on the expectations for the season, they have come through with flying colors. I think uh, what Kiki Sanchez-Flores has gotten uh, out of this club is remarkable. They've been a well-organized side. Uh, Kapu, until he got hurt, had been fantastic uh, as a guy, kind of that linchpin in central midfield. And uh, once Igalo and Dini's goals dried up, now Dini got two goals at the end of this right, match after right. uh, Sissoko got sent off, but once once those goals dried up, uh, they were losing a lot of 1-0 games, uh, or 2-1 matches. So, uh, I think you just go out and address it and get a Premier League level striker, Igalo and Dini, two guys they brought up from the championship, mm-hmm. and maybe you've you've solved some of your problems. But chances are they're still going to look in another direction for another manager, which is unfortunate because I think Kiki Sanchez Flores has done a very good job with this side. I think that's one thing what we have to be careful of, though, is this really cold and blunt approach to managers in the sense that they will chop them quite easily if, if it's not Sanchez Flores it's Slikisic last season that in itself could very much narrow down the potential candidates to succeed him in the sense that it doesn't feel as if there's that loyalty there because again nothing was guaranteed when Sanchez Flores came in he's taken them to a cup semi-final safety in the Premier League and okay it hasn't been beautiful at all port, in, in all parts of the season but I think there's been enough for them to be pleased with so the fact that they're willing to dispense on the one hand you could say okay that's ruthless business and then it's it's admirable in that regard that they have so much ambition but sometimes you have to think maybe a little bit of patience would be better served for, for Watford at this precise moment let's move ahead to the game between uh, Newcastle and Crystal Palace Chris I'll come back to you here um, the game was decided by a great free kick by Townsend uh, for me watching the game Newcastle were much the better team, especially in the first half. Uh, they were playing without Shelby, uh, Ayozi, or Mitrovic and looked very organized, especially uh, in the center of the park, playing that 4-2-3-1 that we know Benitez tends to love. So uh, your your thoughts on this win for Newcastle, which really was a must-win game for them, keeps them just outside the relegation zone right now. Sunderland having uh, Sunderland Norwich having played one game less than Newcastle are two are, are a point and two points respectively behind Newcastle. I think you touched on it there yourself, the the fact that even Andres Townsend said afterwards, he got the feeling that Palace came to relegate Newcastle, that they weren't really bothered about a point or anything else. They, they'd come to, to really stuff them down in, in the the mire and the ditch a bit further. Then you look at the team selection for, for Newcastle, again, missing the likes of Shelby and, and Perez. I think what you're seeing with Benitez is someone that knows what, what he wants from the team for the most part, which is organisation and a really compact 11. And that's why he keeps keeps picking Jack Colback and Czech Tiote. And credit to Colback, I've been very critical of him throughout this season. He has drastically improved since Benitez arrived. And if you look at just that 
midfield too. It's a lot tighter now. They're a lot closer together and they provide much more of a shield to the back four, which in turn has improved through the inclusion of Jamal LaSalle, someone who, again, was criticised quite heavily uh, when he did come in. Personally, I, I put it on Twitter that I felt he had a lot of potential. I could see him being a very good centre-back. It's just that idea, again, of, of keeping things tight and not letting in a great number of goals. When they, they've struggled to do that, credit to them, they've held their head and, and not really capitulated entirely. The Southampton result aside, they've managed to stay focused. And in these tighter games, the likes of Palace and Swansea and then the ones that will come up against Villa and Tottenham, that could be huge for them because they're able to score a goal. There's enough attacking talent in there between the likes of Mitrovic and Vinaldum and Sissoko and more importantly Townsend, the man we touched on there, to get a goal or maybe get two goals. And when you have that ability matched with a very dogged defensive mentality, I think you're you're going to manage to climb out of that that mire. And they've given themselves a lot more of a chance than they had after Southampton. I think many, self included, had them going down after that, and, and understandably so. Karthik, the Newcastle's next two fixtures are Villa away. And uh, and home to Spurs. Uh, your thoughts on the their ability to win? Uh, sorry, to stay in the Premier League. Probably will probably will win the Villa game, but the Spurs game is very tricky. Well, they can't they can't let up in that Villa game. It's it's, it's a bit of a trap game, especially with things going so well for Newcastle. And then the final match against Spurs is just going to be a great atmosphere at St James Park. Uh, there is a belief. Now, among Newcastle fans, Chris can speak to this better than any of us, obviously. But uh, even the, the day they appointed Rafa Benitez, that malaise, that kind of anti-Mike Ashley thing that had just consumed club fandom, it, I don't want to say it went away because it didn't. There's still a very strong anti-Mike Ashley uh, a, a kind of shameful streak among Newcastle fans. Not shameful in, in the way they behave, but the shame, shameful toward the club. Uh, they, they, they feel shame about the club. But uh, there was a new sense of optimism with Rafa coming in. I think they had thought, a lot of them, that Rafa would get instant results. It took uh, four or five matches for him to really get rolling, which speaks to the point about potentially making this move earlier. He was sacked by Real Madrid in January, in late January. But uh, once they made it, uh, now they're playing very well. They look like a team that's interested. They look like a team that's uh, enthused, that's playing for results, which... um, Again, I think it's a little bit unfair on Steve McLaren because most clubs that are fighting relegation are not going to be able to attract a manager of Rafa Benitez's pedigree Mm -hmm. or caliber to their club. Let's just face it. Most managers you get at that that level in the table, particularly with relegation at the time, looking fairly certain, uh, are going to be at McLaren's level or maybe even less. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time uh, Newcastle was in this position seven years ago, they ended up with Alan Shearer and Ian Dowie, uh, for, for for heaven's sake. So uh, I, I think it's unfair, the McLaren-Benitez comparison. That having been said, I mean, uh, Mike Ashley, for all of his faults, if, if uh, Benitez keeps them up, what a, a, a move. And uh, assuming Benitez stays in the Newcastle job, which I have to assume he will, if they stay up, uh, he, he wants to manage in England. He's, uh, he, he stated that when he got sacked by Real Madrid. This isn't a temporary thing. I think he wants to, uh, uh, to, to stay in English football long term again. Um, you have to think that they'll be a, uh, they will not be threatened by relegation next season. It's interesting uh, when I look at the remaining fixtures, gentlemen. Uh, it looks like Everton and Watford will have a huge impact on this relegation battle. Both those teams play both Sunderland and North City in the last remaining game. So both those teams might 
uh, results against both those teams might decide the relegation battle uh, coming up. So let's transition to the third game in this section, which is Stoke, Stoke's draw, 1-1 draw with Sunderland. Uh, very few chances, Karthik, in the first half, uh, except for a couple of crouch headers. I saw your tweet where you uh, talked about how uh, you see the irony in, in, the, um, in the fact that Stoke is trying to create this huge change in football under under Hughes but their goal and most of their chances came from knockdowns or or headers uh, involving uh, Peter Crouch yeah and this is the desperation of Stoke now because they've been so poor the last few weeks uh, so terrible the last uh, they had given up four goals in three successive matches coming into this one mm-hmm. uh, that having been said um, it worked it was effective I fully expected uh, Big Sam. Now, now there was a, a toughness and mental resiliency, and, and, and they got that point late with the penalty, and, and uh, Big Sam pointed it to his heart. But I, I fully expected Sunderland to take three points in this match, I have to tell you, and uh, was disappointed in their performance. And I've said for months now on this show, Sunderland would not get relegated because uh, they were playing better than their results. Big Sam had them organized. They were eventually going to start winning games. Uh, it hasn't happened. They're still getting draws. Newcastle's winning games now. So, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see what happens in that match in hand. But it, now I'm beginning to, to tilt toward Newcastle getting out, which uh, obviously I've been very consistent on this show that Sunderland would stay up and, and Newcastle would go down. But uh, they're not getting three points in matches where they should either be better than their opposition or they are better than their opposition. Uh, the exception being the, the head-to-head with Norwich, which was a six-pointer. So, um yeah, I, I, I obviously route one a lot for Stoke in this match, but I, I was disappointed by Sunderland and their performance. The the one thing, Chris, that uh, that Sunderland fans will be happy about is that their team kept going right till the end, and definitely will feel that they created enough chances to warrant uh, Jermaine Defoe's goal. And the other thing, of course, is the fact that they do have a game in hand. So, how do you rate Sunderland's chances at staying up? I think. Their chances are good. This is the problem sometimes when we evaluate these relegation battles is that our focus or favoritism tends to fall with the team that's just won. Right. So at the minute, everyone is thinking that Newcastle are in the best position. But it, I mean, I, to I be fair, it does come down to three points here and there. So it, it that kind of analysis kind of makes sense. But what I would say is, is that Sunderland have two games at home. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing I can say about the Stadium of Light is that when needed, the Stadium of Light can fill up and be a really difficult place to play football. And again, you don't need to be pretty to score goals. I think you look at the Manchester United game at the Stadium of Light, Sunderland weren't the prettiest that day, but they got the result. And they're playing against teams that really aren't fighting for much themselves. So while I'm not suggesting either team would roll over, I would suggest that they're not likely to be as motivated for the game as their opponent. Um, because they have nothing to play for. What's what's the need? If anything, you're trying to keep yourself, um, you know, healthy maybe for the Euros and, and, and other concerns like that. So in that regard, again, I, I still feel as if Sunderland are in the better position. Norwich, I think, are in the weakest position because they just haven't been able to score goals, whereas at least Sunderland, even as poor as they were at Stoke, they managed to find a goal through Jermaine Defoe. I don't think his particular penalty was a penalty. What I do think was a penalty was Jeff Cameron's handball in the first half. So, you, again, I'm, I'm sure Allardyce would, would say that it balances itself out a little bit. In fact, no, I tell you, he didn't. He said the exact opposite <laughs> afterwards. He said that um, 
that they were unfortunate not to to win the, the game because of the the foul and the fact that there, there was a penalty not given. So in that regard, again, I would say they're they're finding points even when they're not playing well, and those are traits that you often associate with the teams that drag themselves up and and keep themselves up. I think what we'll we'll come to find is is that Sunderland's fate when sealed will either reinforce the idea that they are these survival specialists or we'll look at them like we did with Wigan and say that it was just one too many. And I have a, a sneaking suspicion we may be finding it's closer to the former than the latter. Chris, out of Newcastle, Sunderland, North City, your picks for the teams that will go down? Uh, I believe Norwich will go down and I have a feeling that Newcastle will go down as well. Oh, that's got to be hard for you to say. Karthik? Your your turn. I'm gonna go one more week with uh, with Norwich and Newcastle, like Chris. Uh, however, I'm hedging on Newcastle v Sunderland again. Uh, Sunderland not getting the results uh, they, that I thought they'd be getting, and and they're getting points in every game, right? They've I think they've only lost one or right. two matches in right. the last two months, but for the last month and a half. But they're just they keep getting draws, and uh, Newcastle they beat Villa, and they can get a point against Spurs. They might have. They might post it up on the board even with that match in hand. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna for one more week, but next week I might. I might change. And for me, it's gonna be the way it was from the start of the season, which is that Sunderland, North City, and well, Villa already already relegated. So the way it stands right now is the way I see it playing out. I think Newcastle will beat Villa, and I think that result in itself will be enough uh, to keep them in the Premier League. Uh, so let's give you an update on the other leagues. In the, in the championship, a one nothing win today over QPR secured Burnley's promotion back to the Premier League. With one round of games to go, one of either Middlesbrough or Brighton will secure automatic promotion with the other team entering the playoffs against Hull City, Derby County, and Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, and for the record, Borough and Brighton play each other next, making it a playoff game in its own right. So May 7th game, uh, seven, uh, the May... The game on 7th of May is going to be an exciting one. Over in Spain, a late Gareth... Go ahead, Karthik. I thought you were saying something. A goal difference favors... Yeah, goal, goal difference favors borrow, so Brighton has to win. Mm, that's right. Uh, over in Spain, a late Gareth Bale goal secured a one nothing win over Madrid uh, for Madrid over Real Sociedad, while one nothing and 2 nothing wins uh, for Atletico Madrid and Barcelona... Uh, a game in which the Catalan team missed a bunch of chances, meant that the top of the table remains unchanged in La Liga. Barcelona and Atletico Madrid remain locked on 85 points each, with Barcelona having a far superior goal difference. Real Madrid are a point behind on 84, and their goal difference is actually much closer to Barcelona's. So this makes the last two games of the season incredibly thrilling, and and this is going to be a much-watch TV for all of us. I think the slight of Barcelona, gentlemen, has been something to behold in the last three weeks. Almost Arsenal-esque, some might say. Uh, In Serie A, with Juventus having secured the title, it seems we have finally decided the Champions League teams as well. Napoli and Roma have enough of a points cushion over Inter uh, that something that only something calamitous would change next season's uh, UC, uh, Champions League teams. Inter will be ruining that 2 nothing loss to Lazio from yesterday. And finally, in Bundesliga, a comfortable 5-1 win over Wolfsburg uh, for, for Dortmund meant that they remained five points behind Bayern Munich, who tied 1-1 with Borussia Mönchengladbach with four games to go in the season. When we come back in section three, we'll review the, less, the results from the rest of the league and preview the Champions League games, and then we'll call it a night for World Soccer Talk podcast. 
In the final section of tonight's podcast, we'll talk about uh, the the wins for Everton and Swansea. So let's start with the the win, the two one win for Everton over Burnmouth. These this is a game that didn't have a lot of impact on the league, but what was interesting uh, was Lukaku's goal drought now continues. He has a quote unquote drought. He has no goal in six. Barkley remains a bit out of form, although he was involved in the build up to the second goal. He doesn't have a goal or an assist in 10 games. Uh, yet Everton get the win that they've wanted, that their fans have wanted. And while Bournemouth were full of industry, had a little, didn't create too much of note, Karthik. So, Karthik, anything to add about this game before I ask you what I think our listeners want to hear about, which is your thoughts on Martinez? No, nothing, nothing much to add. I mean, Bournemouth uh, got the points they needed when Max Gradle got back from injury, uh, returned from injury. Uh, Afobe was a really good midseason signing, maybe maybe the most impactful January signing uh, this season. And and then well, obviously other than the, um, other than Alexander Pato, but yeah. <laughs> right. right, or Matt Miazga for our American it. listeners. Uh, yeah, which is a, a harsh one. I, I'm, I'm hoping Miazga. Yeah, I think Miazga still has Chelsea, a future at Chelsea. Or, yeah, yeah, or, or get loaned out somewhere where he will actually play. But uh, no, I, I, there's nothing much more to say about this. Uh, Lukaku isn't a bit of a funk, which brings up the question again of the Euros. I mentioned it earlier. Origi, prior to this injury, which is a short-term injury, uh, which will keep him out for about four weeks, uh, really looked finding form under Jurgen Klopp and doing um, not just scoring goals for Jurgen Klopp, but just uh, doing all the little things that strikers don't generally do in the international game uh, these days. So uh, I'm not sure Lukaku even starts for Belgium this summer, believe it or not. Yeah. So let me ask you the question that I've wanted to ask you. I, I love watching Everton play. Uh, I've said this many a time, and I, I'm always curious because I find you to normally be very measured. But when it comes to Martinez, uh, I often hear you saying, uh, accusing him of being a bit of a, uh, almost a, I, I don't even remember what word you used, but it, it seemed like you were suggesting that he's kind of swindled all of the Premier League into buying into this. Yeah, I call I used to, I used to, I used the term charlatan. That's to what it was. Them. That's right. Maybe that was over the top. So, yeah. So they, yes, but I think he's a guy that's. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you, well, do you I, hold I him to a higher he, standard than you hold other managers? It's possible. It's very possible because I, I, I see I see very little pushback on uh, until this year. And it's come from Everton supporters. This is remarkable, guys. Uh, normally, the media is beating the drum about how bad a manager is and how a manager needs to be replaced before the supporters of that club jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, in this specific case, it was the Everton supporters who started to beat the drum. Uh, I, I started a while back, right? But Everton supporters after that, including our colleague Matt Jones, mm-hmm. her World Soccer Talk, uh, who was admitted to me at times he can't even stand to watch Everton anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the media got on, on, on the uh, on the bandwagon, which brings me back to my to the initial point, which is perhaps I do ha- I, uh, uh, hold Martinez to a higher standard because I think the media has t- held him to a lower standard hmm. than uh, they have other managers. Uh, I feel like he um, at Wigan he inherited a team from Steve Bruce that was you know not not a mid table team, but not a team that was. That happened. That should have needed to escape relegation the way they did every season. Now we transformed their playing style, and, and they were fun to watch. But uh, they were they were struggling, and, and uh, they finally did go down. Yes, he won an FA Cup there. Great run, great story. Uh, but at Everton, 
Uh, he inherited a team from David Moyes, spent more money than David Moyes did, got higher-level players, and maybe that's a credit to him that Lukaku, Delafeu, some of these other guys wanted to play for him, but the results just haven't been there. And the thing about Martinez that I don't like, especially is that, and I've noticed this going back to his time at Wigan, uh, the gaffer could inform us more about his time at Swansea. I have to admit I didn't follow him that closely there. But um, his substitutions generally don't make sense. They generally don't work. And tactically, uh, while he has, is flexible tactically and whether he sets up in this 3-5-2, which he's been fascinated with his entire management tenure in the Premier League, or uh, a straight 4-4-2 or 4-3-3 or whatever, 4-2-3-1, he doesn't tend to be terribly flexible in-game uh, with his uh, with his formations. So I... Um, I just don't think he's a, he's a very good manager. I think he might be fine for a club like Norwich. He was fine for Wigan. I just think Everton is a, is a bigger club than that. And they're going to, now they've got some investment, they're going to get a better manager than him. Rafa Benitez would have been the guy. He's off the market now. Even though I know an, uh, a former Liverpool man shouldn't manage Everton, he lives there, and I think uh, it, it would have worked. But um, uh, they waited too long, so they're not going to get him. But don't you think that, that he's... First of all, the style of football that Everton plays is is a throwback to the kind of football that I think a lot of people like watching. I, I know that it's frustrating for Everton supporters that they drop points like the way they did against Chelsea at the end, against Bournemouth at the end. But it's a very attacking kind of football that can be fixed uh, defensively to to make improvements. And, and let's not forget that the, the two seasons he's been char in charge at Everton, uh, he's had he's had league positions that have not been too dissimilar from how they were under Moyes. Under Moyes, they were as uh, they were uh, well, they the came first as year. right. They were as high as fifth, and they've been as but, low as eleventh under Moyes. So it's not unprecedented. But, but uh, toward the end, but the, toward the end of Moyes' tenure, they never finished eleventh. I mean, that uh, people who have uh, come back at me with this argument have said, "Well, Moyes finished fourteenth uh, uh, one year, or something like that." But it was very early in his tenure, mm -hmm. and he inherited Moyes inherited an Everton side. Right, right, well, no, but Moyes inherited an Everton side that was lucky they were st they were still in the Premier League. They were so close to relegation on on several occasions, mm -hmm. and he gradually built them up from a team fighting relegation every season to a team uh, knocking on the door of. Europe every year at a time when there was a huge discrepancy in spending between the top clubs and clubs like Everton, uh, which there won't be anymore because of this television deal. So Martinez inherited that Everton, and he's made that Everton worse. He's been surpassed by the likes of West Ham and Southampton and Leicester, obviously. Uh, you look, Everton was in the same conversation as Spurs uh, when Moyes left. They were at the same point as Spurs. Where are those two clubs now? Right. Not, not very similar. Great points, and we'll, we'll talk about this more another time. Um, when I when I have better points to make, I guess I didn't prepare myself for this battle. Chris, let's move to uh, across Merseyside. Uh, let's I'm talk about to the inner monologue of Ted Cruz for a second there. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Leicester. Let's talk about <laughs> Liverpool uh, losing to Swans to Gaffer's beloved Swans three one. Heavily rotated Liverpool side, and and everyone I've spoken to uh, who is a Liverpool supporter, th there's a sense of. Well, let's just focus on Thursday. But you cannot get away from some of the things that Liverpool keeps showing. I know this was a heavily rotated side, but set-piece defending, yet again, continues to be a joke for Liverpool. Uh, probably will come up, uh, come into play against Villarreal. And what I want to point out is Liverpool, we talk about Liverpool Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. I think it's mostly in defense because you have these brilliant performances like they had in the first leg against uh, Borussia Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund, which I thought was one of the best defensive performances in a while. And then you also have awful performance in, in this where for the third goal, they look like a bunch of 10-year-olds. 
I think that's a, a very good way to put it. And I think what I would say as well is that you have to accept that Jurgen Klopp has come in mid-season and is trying to teach a lot of players, arguably a lot of new ideas. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a, a maturation process in there. There's going to be a period of difficulty as well where some of them don't understand what they're being asked to do or don't always get it right. Because again, you can understand how to do something and still not get it right when you're learning something for the first time. I think the difficulty for, for Liverpool is is that because the Villarreal game is firmly in their mind, if they don't achieve something with that, it will feel like a failure. When actually, if you were to take them back to the 8th of October and say, OK, by the end of the season, you could be on the cusp of a, a Europa League final and doing relatively OK in the league, would you take that? They'd probably say, yeah, right. because it's not a terrible sense of achievement relative to where they were now. The fact that they've got this... To, could arguably draw comparisons to Arsenal in that sense and say the fact that they are where they are now, the expectation has consequently risen because they've seen these little flittering and flickering moments with Jurgen Klopp of a team that could challenge for a Premier League title. They've been able to dismantle Man City, for example. It's just getting that consistency again. The difference is that Jurgen Klopp has just dropped in there. So there's, there's going to be more time afforded to him, and rightly so. I think... I'm more curious with Liverpool now to see what they do in the summer. I almost think it's it's very pointless kind of watching them from now until the end of the season because essentially what you're seeing is live training drills against real opponents. <laughs> Come the summer, though, when he has the opportunity to potentially go and get someone like Marc-Andre Sagan in goal and other people <laughs> who, again, are more in his way of thinking, then, come the start of next season, you'll be able to gauge kind of where the real problems are. Because if he signs some defenders that are able to understand his process a little bit better, then that problem may eradicate itself. It could also be a situation that Rafa Benitez found himself in, where he used uh, zonal marking, I believe, quite consistently, and was quite consistently criticised for it because it was often how they would concede from set pieces. Now, I'm not looking to spark the debate between man marking and zonal marking. That's for another time. But whether it's an actual problem, I think you'll know more come the start of next season because then he'll have had an opportunity to essentially work his way through those problems and arguably shift some players who he already thinks aren't part of the, the future of the football club. Karthik, uh, let's transition into previewing uh, the games for the Champions League games tomorrow and Wednesday. Um, for, let's start with you with the Bayern Atletico Madrid game. Uh, the game is poised with the one goal difference uh atletico madrid having won one zero i think with a scoreline like that you have to give the advantage to atletico madrid but bayern have an incredible record at home uh interestingly atletico madrid have a great record against german side so something's going to give in this game uh last week i thought vidal was probably the only good player for bayern uh atletico madrid would possibly be missing tiago uh, possibly carrasco and godin so your thoughts on this game yeah i think it's really going to depend on those the injuries of Godin is missing in particular. Uh, Carrasco also, for that matter. Uh, I think uh, the time might tilt in Bayern's favor. Otherwise, I think Atleti see this out. They, they probably get a nil-nil or one-one and, and get out of there and, and go to the yeah. final. And I think they're the favorite defensive in this record, competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think they're the favorite in this competition, and and uh, I would expect them to win actually win the Champions League this year. They were so close two seasons ago. Uh, but uh, Godin injury in particular could uh, completely change that. Yeah, it'll be Pep's last chance to win the Champions League with Bayern. I think that's the one 
dark mark against his time uh, his time in Germany, uh, having gone out at the semifinal stage. I think it was the semifinal stage both years that he's been at Bayern. Am I correct in that? It was Barcelona yeah. and yeah, and he could complete the trifecta of the three big Spanish clubs, right. knocking him out in three years. So. That would be uh, that would be unfortunate. And they still, by the way, have not clinched the league title. Two matches to go. Right. Dortmund technically can catch them if they lose both their games, and Dortmund wins both theirs. Unlikely to happen, but um, they they've taken their eye off the ball a little bit in the league also. And then mm-hmm. what people expected to be a, a twenty point, uh, if people expected Bayern to run away with the Bundesliga the way PSG did in France this year, right. that hasn't happened. Absolutely, and and Bayern, by the way, will also be missing Robin and possibly Ribery, which might complicate things against uh, the best defense in Europe. Chris, uh, talk about Madrid City poised nil nil. Um, usually, we go to Karthik with City questions, but we already covered City with him. So let me ask you: uh, Last time Real Madrid played City at Bernabeu, they snatched a three-two win with two late goals. Uh, to this game, they'll be missing Arbaloa and Benzema, possibly Ronaldo, although he has trained. Um, so, your thoughts on this game? I, I find City one of the hardest teams to predict at present because the potential to flip between brilliant and really poor seems quite consistent, which I guess there's an irony nestled in there somewhere. <laughs> the performance at the weekend was incredibly poor. And I think, again, We've discussed, as as we often do, the changes that will have to occur when Pep Guardiola comes in and how many of the current crop actually are able to, to fit with his ideas. I guess it's a lead on slightly from Jurgen Klopp in that sense. I struggle to see many who will. I think the likes of Navas, I think Otamendi, Mangala, they're going to have to do a lot of changing. Mangala's perhaps one that could follow a similar trajectory right. to, to Jerome Boateng in that sense and, and gain some intelligence with his play. But for the present, I feel as if they're just not good enough to stop that Real Madrid front line. I think it, there's too much quality in there, away from home particularly, where they have struggled for them to stop that. I think they did very well in, in getting that result uh, at the Etihad last time out. But I can't see a repeat of that, and I certainly can't see a narrow 1-0 or 1-1 result just because of, of how poor they are. And equally, I'm not convinced that he will start Iheanacho. I think if I could look at the starting 11s, then I might be able to to say, okay, there's there's a potential for them here. But the fact that he continues to to put Iheanacho on the bench when he's not only the most informed striker they've got, I think he's arguably the best at this precise moment in terms of what he gives them both alongside Aguero, but also the team in general. That to me is, is, is still quite baffling. And, and I'm curious as to why he sees the need to keep putting him on the bench and give others a chance. That's the uh, million-dollar, million-pound question for uh, Manchester City supporters, and it's been a recurring question since October or November when Iheanacho was clearly coming off the bench influencing matches. Even if he wasn't scoring goals, he was influencing matches in a way that no other player, these guys had spent uh, millions and millions of quid on, were, were doing. And um, I don't know, Chris. That's, that, that is the question that is bugging every Manchester City supporter, and the assumption is Iheanacho will not start and that uh, the team will be behind late in this match and he'll be thrown on in the 70th or 75th minute. That's just what we're thinking. Chris and I will be back on Wednesday to discuss how this played out. We will have the starting lineups and the final scores for you for both those games by then and we'll preview what will be an exciting Premier League weekend. Uh, Until then, on behalf of World Soccer Talk, Chris Henage and myself, Karthik. Enjoy your football. <laughs>